So you think what you think he's already dead? You think? I think he was dead before he left. I mean, he had that he had that death stare. I mean, he was not responsive to me at all. Okay. And I finally, after you know, 36 minutes or so, I finally drug him out, and mom's on the phone. You know, call somebody, and I'd already called for dispatch to have you know ambulance come and Sweetwater or somebody come help me. I was gonna try to start doing CPR on him. I started doing chest compressions and stuff on him. Yeah. I didn't breathe into his mouth. Yeah. I didn't know I wasn't gonna take a chance. Snow Files, Season 3, Bonus Episode. Where'd you go? The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Before we get into this week's episode, we want to catch you up on a few things. Jamie recently received the 8,000 documents in Stateville and is still reviewing them. He has a status hearing on May 9th at 1.30 via Zoom. We don't expect much activity because the documents are still under review. But if you'd like to attend, please private message either Tam, Leslie, or Bruce, and we will give you the information to log in. You may be familiar with the Barton McNeil case, also in McLean County, and also prosecuted by Charles Renard and Tina Griffin for the murder of his three-year-old daughter. Barton has a big hearing in McLean County scheduled on May 12th at 1.30, so if you're in the local area, please attend. It's at the McLean County Courthouse, and it would be amazing if we could pack the courthouse. We will be covering that case in the upcoming season, and you can learn more about the Barton McNeil case at freebart.org. We miss you. We have a snow and tell scheduled tentatively for Saturday, May 14th, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we'd love for you to join us to catch up, discuss case events, and talk about both Jamie and Bart's recent hearings. We may even be able to twist someone's arm over at Bart's support camp to give us the lowdown on the hearing. Finally, we'll pick up where we left off in January by releasing episode 44 on May 18th beginning with a recap to bring you back up to speed on previously discussed alternative suspects and continuing to explore the remaining alternative suspects. Now that we are all caught up, we owe those of you who are not aware an explanation for our sudden absence. On February 1st, Tam's son died unexpectedly during a traffic stop for a seatbelt violation by a Tennessee state trooper. He was 28 years old. The autopsy results are still pending. The last two and a half months have been a roller coaster, and we wanted to first and foremost thank all of you for your continued support during this unplanned, extended absence. Patreon subscribers and private donations have continued to keep the snow files afloat, and we are extremely grateful to you for sticking it out with us. We also want to thank those who have sent cards, flowers, well wishes, and words of encouragement to Jamie and Tam. We are so lucky to have you on this journey with us, and we appreciate you more than you may ever know. We decided to do this episode, not only to let you know where we've been, we are also seeking your help. We've spent the last three months investigating Bo's death, and we are going to walk you through the event 
and present the evidence we've gathered in this episode. We could use some feedback and thoughts on the evidence we've collected so far. But be warned, this episode and the additional media materials are graphic. But before we get into the details of the events of February 1st, Jamie wanted to tell you a little bit about his relationship with Bo. Bo was about 15 when he met Jamie for the first time in Stateville, and they hit it off immediately. They'd become close over the years. It seemed like they could talk about anything, and did. They talked about their dreams, crazy ideas for businesses, cars, and girl problems. But mostly, they really love to swap funny stories. Hey, everybody. It's been a little bit since we've done a, an episode on here, and and uh, I really appreciate everyone who's stuck with us. Those of you that know us, you know why we've kind of been gone for a little while. That's kind of why we're doing this episode. A little over 90 days ago, Cammy lost her son, Bo, and it's really been tough for all of us. Bo was a good kid, you know, and I, I say kid, he's a 27-year-old man, but I mean, my my oldest son's almost 40, and I still think of him as a kid, so to me, they're all kids. He was a good kid, you know, and he was good to me. I remember the first time I met Bo, Cammy was bringing her kids up here to visit me. I remember the night before, you know, I was so nervous. You know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And this kid came walking into the visiting room, you know, and I say kid, but, you know, he was as big as I was, you know, he was a man. And I shook my hand and he gave me a hug and we just sat there and we visited and we laughed and he told these stories. And I'll never forget when the visit was over. He shook my hand and he gave me a hug and he said, just hang in there, man. We're going to get you out of here. You know, Bo was a part of everything that we were doing. You know, he was a part of our first postcards in the park and he would watch his little sister so his mom could do the things that she was doing to try to help me. And it's a terrible loss to us all, even those of you that, you know, never got to meet Bo. Bo was, to me, he was a searcher, you know, he was a seeker. There was a song by the band The Who called The Seeker. And that really reminds me of Bo a lot. You know, he was seeking. He wasn't settling. And he was always looking to find his place. You know, he didn't just get a good job and, and just hang on to it. He was looking for the thing that made him happy. And, you know, I really admired that about him. You know, I had big dreams and I had big hopes for when I got out of prison and the, and the things that I was going to do with Bo. I, you know, I've got these dreams and these these, these hopes for for me and all my kids, you know, and I always thought the same thing about Bo. We've put a lot of the information on this podcast about how we lost Bo. I wish that all of you would have had a chance to meet Bo because I think he would have, I think, you know, some of the things that his mom has told me about him, he's never met a stranger, kind of like how I was. I feel like I was a bit of a kindred spirit with Bo in that I never met a stranger. So... I really wish you all would have had a chance to meet him. I am a true believer. I know a lot of people don't believe this, but I believe that this life isn't it, that we're all going to see our loved ones again someday, right? I believe that I'm going to see Bo again someday, and I hope that we all get a chance to see him again someday because he's going to be uh, sorely missed. So we appreciate you guys sticking with us, all of you that have been a part of this journey with us from the beginning. We appreciate you sticking with us, and we appreciate you guys tuning in for this episode, and and we love you, Bo, 
and we'll always miss you, but we'll see you again someday. It was February 1st, a little bit after six, and my son, Bo, got up to take a shower, and uh, there had been a list of groceries, just just a few like staple things like bread and milk and whatever that he had been procrastinating to go get. So he got up, took a shower, and he, and I was in my office working. I worked from home, and he was like, Mom, I'm going to go get that stuff, and he seemed fine. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that he had COVID a couple of years ago and that he had heart failure due to COVID. So like six months after he got out of the hospital, he had a vest on. But honestly, this was the best that he had been doing since that time. He was here because the doctor recommended that he did not live alone. That's just a little backstory um, about what was going on with his health. So he was doing good and got up and Bo doesn't get up and do anything. I mean, if he doesn't feel like it or he's sick, he ain't doing it. (laughs) He'll stay in bed. So he said, mom, I'm going to go do this. And I was just wrapping up work, logging out. I have to log out at 630, I think. And uh, he called me at about 620. And we talked for about 10 minutes. He was like, mom, I got stopped by a state trooper. And I was like, man, he's like, where's the insurance? Where's the registration and all this stuff? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. But what what were you doing on the highway? He said, I wasn't on the highway. I'm in town. And we live in a really small town. And uh, I was like, well, okay, that's weird. But uh, he said he stopped him for a seatbelt violation. I sent him the insurance. And I said, "I, I don't know where the registration is, but just take the ticket and we'll go clear it up. Did sound a little bit stressed. And that's, I was more so, you know, don't worry about it. We'll just go prove that, that it's registered. And, and we talked for about 10 minutes. The trooper was behind him and he was, I guess, writing him a ticket for a seatbelt violation. And then Bo just started gasping. Everything was just quiet for a little bit. And then he just went, (gasps) and I was like, oh my God, you know, he's having a panic attack. That's what was going through my head. And then he just went <gasps> again, you know, like he just like he couldn't breathe. And I was like, oh, my God. And I immediately got up and ran out. Uh, I knew where he was. So I was going to go meet him. And I was on speakerphone the whole time. And I was I was yelling at him to fall out of the truck. That's like all I knew to do because I knew the trooper couldn't see him. Uh, or wasn't paying attention. And I was just screaming, Bo, Bo, are you okay? And really to the top of my lungs. And I was like, fall out of the car, just fall out of the truck. And finally, I heard the trooper's voice. And I heard him say, sir, sir, uh, are you okay, sir? And it just washed over me that, oh my God, thank God, help is here. Okay, I'm going to break in here for a bit. We recently acquired the Trooper dash cam and an edited short clip of this particular issue that we're focusing on, which is from the time the Trooper found Bo unresponsive and his initial response is posted on the episode page on snowfiles.net. 
We've also posted all the reports, the body and dash cam of the local police officer, several dispatch audio tapes, as well as the full audio of the trooper dash cam, which is over an hour and 40 minutes long and starts when Trooper Walker calls in the stop and ends when Trooper Walker leaves for the hospital. So we know a lot more now. Having said that, we want to caution you that it's very graphic and it may be difficult to watch, especially if you knew Bo. We are posting the information because we would love to hear your thoughts as medical professionals, law enforcement, or just the general public's opinion on the trooper's response to this incident. When Leslie, Nicole, and I recorded this episode, I described what happened. But after review, we decided you might get a better understanding of the response if we played the audio in real time. Bo had me on speakerphone the entire time, so I couldn't see what was happening. All I could do was hear it. And because Trooper Walker had his mic on, you could hear everything, not only from my perspective, but from Trooper Walker's perspective. So to set this clip up, I was on my way to the scene by the time I heard the trooper's voice. It had already been one minute and 22 seconds since Bo started gasping for breath. As the trooper approaches, you can hear me on the speakerphone yelling Bo's name. Sir? Sir? Hey, sir? Hey, sir, what's going on with you? Is he okay? Uh, I don't know what's going on with him. Something's wrong. He's breathing. Is this breathing? Sir, are you all right? I don't think he's okay. Who are, who are you? I'm out with Okay, I'm out with him. I'm on Trooper Walker the Hogs Crawl. We got him stopped here in the parking lot. I'm okay, I'm going to call an ambulance for him. Can you give me an ambulance and route down here to subjects uh, having some type of medical issue? I've got an ambulance coming, ma'am. Sir, is he, what kind of medical problems or issues does he have? He, he had COVID and he got heart failure because of it. That was a year ago. Oh, okay. 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 Store parking lot right across from Wivels here on 68. I don't know. He's he's behind the wheel. I don't want to drag him out here. On, he's kind of. Sir, can you breathe? Sir. If he can't talk, he can't. He's not breathing. He's trying to breathe, but I don't think he's doing a very good job right now. Oh my God. Sir. Sir. 
Yeah, ma'am, you can get down here. I need, come on down here. Okay, sir. Sir. Oh my God. Does he need CPR? I don't know, I, sir. I'm trying to, he's, I'm trying to check his pulse right now. Two minutes and 39 seconds after Trooper Walker realized Bo was unresponsive, he finally checks for a pulse. This is after he had called an ambulance, was told Bo had heart failure, was told Bo couldn't breathe, observed Bo couldn't breathe, and observed Bo couldn't talk. I had also asked about CPR and if Bo needed to lay down. Trooper Walker, at this time, is still standing at Bo's window and has not rendered aid. Sir. Oh, my God. Sir. 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 Are you, can you hear me? I've got, ma'am, I've got, I've got a name that's in route to me already right now. Sir. You said he's had some heart problems? Yes. Sir. Can you get uh, Sweetwater PD down here? I believe he's uh, losing a pulse here. Pull him out of his truck. Sir. Sir. I'm trying to get him out, ma'am. Trying to get him out. Sir, come here. Sir. Sir. Four minutes and three seconds after Trooper Walker discovered Bo unresponsive, he finally pulls Bo out of the truck. By this time, he had checked Bo for a pulse five times, had told dispatch he was losing a pulse. And I had asked about CPR three times and had told him Bo had heart problems twice. I'm trying to get him out of the truck, ma'am. Just, just, just. Sir. Oh. After he lays Bo on the ground, Trooper Walker does not immediately start chest compressions. Instead, he takes over a minute to do the following in this order. Adjusts Bo's shirt, checks Bo's pulse on his neck, puts his hands together on Bo's chest briefly as if to begin chest compressions, but doesn't puts his left hand on Bo's stomach and his right hand on his neck to check Bo's pulse again, moves both of his hands to Bo's neck, one on each side, to check Bo's pulse again, places his right hand underneath Bo's head, puts his left hand on Bo's neck, 
to check his pulse again, opens Bo's mouth as if to begin rescue breaths, but doesn't, puts his left hand on Bo's stomach again, and his right hand on Bo's neck to check his pulse again. Although an autopsy was ordered and the cause of death is still to be determined by the medical examiner, the emergency room doctor's preliminary finding was cardiac arrest. According to statistics, for every minute that passes without treatment, survival rates of cardiac arrest decrease by 10%. Immediate action is critical to survival, as explained in the following excerpt from cardiologist and electrophysiologist Dr. Gorey on Michigan's Fox 17's Morning Mix. So there's, there's differences between a heart attack, mm-hmm. which is a plumbing problem where a blocked artery causes uh-huh. a blockage, and then there's the electrical chaos called sudden cardiac arrest, where it's actually the heart goes into a, it's an electrical problem. The heart goes into a very fast, rapid rhythm, so fast that it cannot pump blood to the rest of the body. And because of that happens, obviously a patient would be, be a person would become unconscious. Mm-hmm. And unless it's treated very quickly, it usually ends up uh, with death. So different than your cholesterol levels and blockages. This is an electrical issue and you're seeing some of the Correct. symptoms, sudden collapse, no pulse, no breathing, loss of consciousness. So that's what it is and those what the symptoms are, but how, and, and basically how it's different from a heart attack, but what if someone is, we see this happening, I want to do a good Samaritan thing and help them, what in the world could I possibly do in a situation like that? Right, so when somebody is unconscious, the most important thing to do is to react and not just wait for somebody else to come there. Okay. So there's something called the chain of survival, which is one, identifying that something's wrong. So if I were to see you on the ground, I need to act mm-hmm. or any, any person needs to act. So you recognize it, you call 911, that's mm-hmm. the first step. The second step is to do CPR. And the third step is to get a defibrillator. There's AEDs or automated external defibrillators. Mm -hmm. They're becoming more and more common. They're all over the place and they're very easy to use. Um, And the fourth step is advanced care that happens in the hospital. But those first three steps, Mm -hmm. any person, you don't have to be a physician, a nurse can can do. And the other point that I want to make is about CPR. It's become a lot easier. You saw CPR in TV shows and, you know, there's, breaths and compressions. Now just doing compressions is what's been recommended by the American Heart Association. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as hard as you'd think. I mean, definitely I recommend classes. People should learn how to do it. But once you've seen, uh, taken this class, it's very easy to do. The most important thing is to not just stand there and wait for someone else to do something. Because the worst case scenario, if you start doing CPR, uh, the person would say, hey, what are you doing? The worst case scenario is if you don't do it, they die. Five minutes and eight seconds after finding Bo unresponsive, Trooper Walker finally starts chest compressions. It's been over a minute since he pulled Bo out of the truck. So far, Trooper Walker has checked Bo's pulse about 10 times, but this is the first time he has actually given him any aid. Trooper Walker performs about five sets of chest compressions until the local police officer arrives. He appeared to be performing standard CPR, which is 30 compressions and two rescue breaths, then repeat. And although he took the breaks for rescue breaths, he did not give Bo rescue breaths. 
Hands-only CPR is the current recommendation by the American Heart Association for Adults and Teens in Cardiac Arrest. The method refers to constant chest compressions only, without rescue breaths, until an AED becomes available or until medical professionals arrive. From what I've read, it's more effective. However, the method involves taking no breaks at all. The reasoning behind this method is that if you can get the blood flowing, oxygen will get to the brain. And there's a much better chance of that if breaks aren't given to give rescue breaths. In Trooper Walker's case, not only were the counts and increments between compressions inconsistent, he took breaks for rescue breaths without giving him rescue breaths. It seems like it should have been one or the other, constant chest compressions or the 30 compression to rescue breath method. Seven minutes and 43 seconds after Trooper Walker found Bo unresponsive, the local backup police officer arrives. Can you hear me? You got a dick paper later? I do not, but it's right behind me. We got one, even one. Is it overdose? No, I mean, he was fine. I don't think so. He said COVID has got heart problems. Okay. His mother's on the phone, has been on the phone talking to him. Does he have any other health problems? What's his health problem? Although it was abundantly clear that Bo had heart issues, Trooper Walker never called for an AED from the responders through dispatch. Fire rescue wouldn't arrive until nine minutes and three seconds after Trooper Walker found Bo unresponsive. It's now been nine minutes and 20 seconds since Trooper Walker discovered Bo unresponsive. It's been 10 minutes and 42 seconds since Bo started gasping for breath. And it's been 10 minutes and 42 seconds since Bo has had any oxygen. Bo wouldn't get his first AED shock until 11 minutes and 6 seconds after Trooper Walker found him unresponsive. It would be 20 minutes and 47 seconds from the time Trooper Walker found Bo unresponsive before the ambulance arrived. About an hour and 20 minutes later, after Trooper Walker's lieutenant had arrived and the two of them were searching Bo's truck alone, Trooper Walker told his lieutenant that he pulled Bo out of the truck 
and began chest compressions after 30 seconds or a minute or so. So you think what you think he's already dead? You think? I think he was dead before he left. I mean, he had that he had that death stare. I mean, he was not responsive to me at all. Okay. And I finally, after you know, 30 seconds, a minute or so, I finally drug him out. And mom's on the phone, you know, call somebody. And I'd already called for dispatch to have you know ambulance come and Sweetwater or somebody come help me. I was gonna try to start doing CPR on him. I started doing chest compressions and stuff on him. I didn't breathe into his mouth. Yeah. I didn't know I wasn't gonna take a chance, but yeah. I felt I was trying to see if I felt any anything. I didn't couldn't feel a pulse. Um, I just did multiple chest compressions until you know the fire. Did he go to sweet water? Do what? Did he go to sweet water? Yeah. If Trooper Walker would have actually started CPR within 30 seconds or a minute, like he told his supervisor he did, there's a chance. Bo might still be alive today, but he didn't, and Bo is dead. We pick back up on the story when the ambulance arrived. The ambulance finally got there, and they were working, and they loaded Bo up, worked on him a little bit in the ambulance. And they were leaving, so we had Bo's truck there, my car, and my sister and brother-in-law's car there. I'm going to go home and get Bo's meds and get my phone charger because I don't know how long I'm going to be at the hospital. And my shoes. I ran out without my shoes. That's how bad it was. I had I didn't have shoes on. I was leaving, and um, that uh, local cop said, hey, can your brother-in-law drive the truck home? He didn't want us to have to deal with that. My brother-in-law, Ricky, said, absolutely. He said, that's fine. And then I left. But when I looked back, the trooper was in Bo's truck searching it. And my first thought was, I didn't give him consent to search the truck. Then I went to the hospital and Ricky and Terry were already there. That's my sister and brother-in-law were already there and they had taken us to this little room. I call it the death room because we're in a fucking emergency room. So why are they going to take us into this other stupid room to be alone? Nobody does that. They make you sit and suffer if somebody's still alive back there. So it's just the three of us in the death room. And I have been trying to call Grace, my daughter. It took a while to get a hold of her. And then when I finally did, I was already in the death room. And I said, you need to come now. You just need to come. Before she even got there, they came in and told us that he had passed away. And I was like, why? He just said, I, I don't know. And then Gracie came in and, and she just looked at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, he didn't make it. And she goes, Bo? <laughs> like, you know, it's like she just couldn't believe it. Like, are you talking about Bo? <laughs> and I was, I was just like, yeah, honey, I'm so sorry. Grace is 19. So there's a pretty big gap between their ages. And she literally just grabbed the trash can and threw up. <laughs> And people were coming in and out and everybody that asked me questions, I probably said five times because I don't care. Obviously, he needed help. If they were asking me if he's doing anything, I'm like, he smokes weed, does CBD. 
he drinks. Weed is not legal in Tennessee. I had no problem telling him anything because I wanted them to save him. I didn't care. Then it's me and Gracie's fiance and uh, Ricky and Terry. That's it. That's all of us that's in that room. And they called me out and they said, the police want to talk to you. It was the trooper that stopped him, uh, Trooper Walker. And then it was a lieutenant, which I found out later his name was Lieutenant Smith, who I thought was the detective started asking. You know, just started kept, just kept talking about drugs and asking asking questions, and I'm like, and I looked at Grace because Grace had not been there, and sometimes brothers and sisters tell each other shit they don't tell their parents, and I said, Gracie, was he doing anything? Do you know of anything that he was doing? And she just looked looked that 45 year old man right in the face and said, you know. He's not done anything. He's clean. He's been clean for a long time. And she was, she was getting pissed off. And, and that was pissing me off. I don't know why they were in there being that way. So I stood up and then it's just me and the, me and the lieutenant are the only ones standing there. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't know what you want. And I, I just kind of gestured. I, I gave you his bag of meds. I mean, I've told everybody that he had a drug problem a few years ago and that he smokes weed and anything I can think of. And, uh, <sighs> and he, he does that detective lean back, <laughs> crossing his arms and he goes, well, where was he headed? I said he was going to get groceries, bread, milk. He was going to get groceries. And what does it matter? Because he's dead. What are you going to do? Arrest him? And then he started to leave. And the trooper was over by the door and he handed me a toe slip. And I said, why did you tow the car? I, I like, I gave you permission. I gave Ricky permission. The cop was right there. And uh, Erie, Gracie's boyfriend, said that he said that he, he didn't hear me. Oh, and I, and, and you know what? Maybe I did hear that because I remember looking at him and I said, oh, you didn't hear me like you didn't hear me when I was begging for you to do CPR because I kept asking him to do CPR. Um, I kept asking him to lay him down. I mean, and I was like, you know, how many times did I ask you to do CPR on him uh, and told you that he had heart problems? You didn't hear me then? That was really hard for all of us. And we had to find out. I had to find out what happened. I had to find out what happened. So initially, I got all the police reports. And interestingly, the last sentence in the trooper's very, very pithy, tiny report, where a death occurred at a seatbelt traffic stop, he said, after me and Lieutenant Smith arrived at the hospital, we found out that he had heart problems. That was one of the first reports I got. And, the, and, and the, when I saw that, and as all of us know, when we're investigating stuff, there's a reason that he put that there and he lied. 
Does he, what kind of medical problems or issues does he have? Okay, because I've got a name listing her out. You said he's had some heart problems? Yes. You got a defibrillator? I do not, but it's right behind me. We got one, even one. Is it overdose? No, I mean, he was fine. I don't think so. He said COVID has got heart problems. You got a defibrillator? Heart failure. How long has he been diagnosed with that? That's out of here. Okay. Hey, Worm. Yeah. High blood pressure and heart failure for about a year diagnosed. Heart failure. Uh, blood say diabetes. Blood pressure. Sorry. High blood, high blood pressure, pressure and heart failure. So why did he lie? So then I knew something was seriously wrong because there was not, there was not even any reason for him to say that, you know, we got the police reports and got all that. And just for two months, I've been trying to figure out what the hell happened. One thing I found out just to backtrack a little bit, because I was pissed off that they towed the truck when they towed the truck, I had to go up there and get it the next day. Or as everybody knows, they what 35, 45, however much a day. For leaving it in there. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do that. That was not what I wanted to do the morning after my son died. And I didn't have the money, frankly. I did not have the money. Uh, it was $350 and I had to put 200 uh, When Bo went to the store, he was just getting staples because we only I only had $250 in my checking account. And then I had to find um, another 150 on a credit card because I could only give them 200. So I had to ask them to split it up. A week after that happened, I went back to that place because it was like in a hotel liquor store parking lot. That's where he pulled them over. I was like, well, I bet, you know, there was a cop in the parking lot. A bunch of people were, because I knew there was like five people standing around. And I was so pissed off because I know that you need to get those people right then, right? Why didn't, I mean, I know why, but I, I wish I would have walked, walked around and at least got their phone, their phone numbers and their, and their names so I could contact them. My thinking was they may have seen something I didn't before I got there. I don't know. They were there. So I went in the liquor store and I was talking to the guy that was there and just trying to ask him questions. You know, did you see what happened? And he was just like, I really didn't see anything. Our cameras aren't working and all this stuff. But he was super nice. And he said, uh, yeah, I know that local police officer. He came in and asked my permission to keep the truck in the parking lot overnight if needed. And I told him, of course. Of course. So he had permission from the owner of the parking lot. He had permission from me and they towed it anyways. And I, and I don't know why, but I'm going to get my fucking money back for sure. I don't care what it takes because that was, I don't even know how to explain. It seems like a small thing, but it was so hard to do that. I mean, it's been two and a half months and I still can't hardly keep it together. And uh, that next day, I was just, fuck, I didn't want to see his things or, 
you know, he died in that fucking truck. Then I knew uh, there was no reason for him to tow it at all. So getting back, I wrote a transcript of just that part, you know, where Bo actually died. And we, we just saw so much more. It was, a, it was a ridiculous long time. And it was just like watching a fucking train wreck. Like I, I, I heard, you know, every, I did not know that it was as bad as it was. But, but I was on the phone with him. And, and again, I, I was so pissed off and unfortunately vindicated because they kept trying to treat me like I just wanted to blame somebody for Bo's death. Bo may have died. I, I have no idea. He may have died anyways. But he didn't have a chance in hell with that trooper being the only person on the scene with him for, you know however long it took for the fire rescue to show up. And that's what happened. Well, I watched the video and I had the same impressions. I noticed immediately it was five minutes um, between when Bo was unconscious to when the compression started. And you could tell, and you could hear you on the phone with him. Um, when the police officer walked up to the car, you could hear you crystal clear. I was very surprised. I almost was wondering how Bo could have had like auxiliary set up to that old car because it sounded like you were on the speaker system. That's how loud you were. But you did see him roll his head back, cock his head back, and then lunge forward and start trying to gasp for air. You could see that crystal clear. It was like a stage was set with the police officer's headlights right on the back windows, you could see right into the car and see everything. And um, it's just very apparent that the police officer was very hesitant and did not want to do CPR, almost like he couldn't believe this was happening to him. And you were asking about the hand on his stomach. That's to feel if his stomach is going up and down where you're doubting yourself and you're like, is he breathing? Is he not breathing? You can put your hand there and see if your hand goes up and down. And then the time he spent on in his mouth, he's like, trying to sweep his airway, probably at that point praying something is stuck in there, and then putting his hand on his neck or whatever he's doing is trying to open up his, his airway. The other thing is you're supposed to start CPR before a person is completely unresponsive. You're supposed to do it when they're starting to become unresponsive. That way they can regain control. And for sure, if you find them unresponsive with a faint pulse. And sure enough, I swear to God, the next day I, I was like, those two symptoms, that unconscious and gasping is cardiac arrest 101. It's not a whole lot that happens, but that happens. Yeah, the directions um, from the Red Cross are literally, if the person doesn't respond or is only gasping, that's when you start. You don't have to be um, trained to give chest, chest compression. I mean, you're supposed to do it a certain way, but you, the most important thing is to start that. If even if you don't know CPR, you can you can move because you're getting that blood going. That's how I understood it. And seconds count. Yeah, and he needed somebody to intervene, and the person whose responsibility it was to intervene didn't. For over five minutes. He was the only one there. And he also... Nobody else could have. He also waited until know? he was basically dead, until the pulse was gone. 
how many times is he going to shake him or check for the pulse? It's almost like he's like just in disbelief. He needed intervention and he didn't get any intervention. And um, it also struck me that it took him 10 minutes to get the defibrillator. So there were two people showed up on the scene who didn't have a defibrillator. I don't understand how police officers don't have that in their car. And it's interesting that you say that because, of course, you know, I've been like a maniac trying to find out, fuck, why don't they have AEDs in the car? Do they have, did he have one? Blah, 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 blah. You know, didn't want to breathe in his mouth. They have the masks that you can, you know, the CPR mask. Did he have that in his car? So all those questions are twirling through my head. And I was looking through the, it was like Tennessee governors, you know, where they put out, we're going to address this problem of, because frequently law enforcement are the first ones on the scene and they're trying to get AEDs and everybody trained on AEDs and uh, there's some resistance, you know, people don't want to take responsibility for it, but I've seen a lot of videos where cops saved lives when they acted immediately, uh, AED or not. He wasn't going to use it if he had it. I mean, the man had two hands that he didn't use. You're right. You're right. And I was reading these guidelines that the governor was putting out in Tennessee. They want to have a process for people that are, you know, having a heart attack, cardiac arrest, like, you know, some emergency where people need immediate assistance. Clear all the lines. And the other thing is, is the first person on the scene is supposed to immediately say, I need an AED. Right. So he knew when he called that he was having heart problems. And I could see where that came from, Leslie, because he was just like randomly asking, you know, the cop came up and he's like, hey, you got an AED? Right. When he should have when he should have said that when he called him, hey, I need backup and I need an AED. Right. Uh, This guy has heart problems. And that's why that's there. And the fire rescue comes and it's this first guy. He just happened to be the first one there, you know, so he walks up and he's like, hey, you got an AED while he's <laughs> trying to got Bo on the ground. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, and then it t- all that time he's got to go back in his car and get it and to shock him. And I and I just thought, wow, that is. <sighs> yeah, he should that have said crazy. it immediately and there should have been a call out for, you know, whoever's closest to him to bring the AED. And when I got there. Because remember, he he kept telling me, ambulance is on its way, ma'am. The ambulance is on its way. The ambulance wasn't there. It was so sad and frustrating and scary. And I don't even know what to say, but, you know, it's really kind of fucked me up. And I'm a lot better than I was. And I'm fine. And I really do think I need to get back into stuff because I, I think when something like this happens, I could just not return to my life <laughs> as it was. I don't even know how to explain it, but I know that others out there have lost children and had things happen to them that's uh, just traumatic. I, I guess I've just never had anything, never had anything like that happen. It was terrible. And Jamie was just beside himself and couldn't get any, he couldn't do anything. I know that he probably talked to some of y'all about that. I don't know, but I know that that was a huge source of his frustration. But I did not pick up the phone for two weeks. I just did not answer any calls. And people tried to call me and I just couldn't. You know, everybody was wonderful about that. But I did answer Jamie's calls. And boy, he's getting a different person every time for a month, a totally different person every time. 
<laughs> well, he's yeah. really good at emotional support and um, clarity and listening because that's his biggest strength. That's all he has is the phone. So he's really good on the phone. And you can tell that he's strengthened that over the years it's his one of his best attributes he's a you know a wonderful friend a wonderful support wonderful confidant so he's also very perceptive and aware of his own plight and how it shouldn't transfer onto other people all the time so he's also very he well he has the ability to take a step back and put you before him and he did tell me often over and over again that he couldn't do anything and he was you know a failure and how awful it was that that was his biggest nightmare it was something catastrophic happening and him not being able to be there and but he was there and he he did a great job and it's not that every inmate who has a phone knows how to talk to people on it you know that's him i think with him, like Leslie was saying, he does have a lot of time, obviously, to be good at his social skills and speaking on the phone. And it's not even, I think, that he works to be that way. It's just kind of forced upon him at this point. Because obviously, when you're in the prison system, it's not really a place for a lot of growth, at least the way that it is today. So... People that are incarcerated, they're just stuck there with their own thoughts and their feelings and they don't have distractions like we do. You know, they can't just put on some music and go take a walk and just try to breathe and be in the moment. So I think that really leads to a lot of inner work and self-development. And I think he's really definitely taken these years to really work on himself and unfortunately but also fortunately it's come to help when you know he could comfort him in her time of need as much as he could because I know he was definitely very shook up about it when he first got the news he sent me like a very disorganized email and you know he's, he's very well spoken as I'm sure people realize if you've heard him speak at all He's very well thought and he thinks about what he's saying. And the email was very chaotic because it wasn't about himself. He was trying to figure out how to be there for the people that he cares about. And obviously he was grieving also, but I think to see somebody that he looks at as a person of strength for him to be hit so hard with something that you just can't imagine, I think it it was really hard for him. You know, he, uh, for two months, he never asked me one thing about his case or the podcast or anything. He was amazing. And I did worry about him because I know his worst fear is losing one of his children. That is his worst fear. And I know that that did a number on him, not only for that reason, but also because him and Bo were very close. That's something that he's struggled with the whole time that he's been incarcerated is losing one of his own children. And that's something that I've struggled with, not with a child, but with losing a sibling. So one of the, you know, the hardest things 
to hear is Tam to talk about Gracie because when I think of Gracie, I think of the little girl that I knew. You know, I haven't seen Gracie in many years. And when I first met her, she was like this little tiny, kind of shy, but also like outspoken little girl. And to think about what she's going through losing a sibling that, you know, she's obviously really close to. I can't, I can't imagine it. I've been in situations where I've almost lost siblings. And so to think about somebody like Bo, to lose him in in such a unexpected way is just a shock. And I, I don't think anybody can prepare you for that, whether that's your brother or your son or a friend or anything. I think that's just something that there's no way you can prepare for that, I guess. You know, as far as Jamie goes, uh, he was so there for me because I could be crazy and he listened to it and talked to me and kept calling throughout that whole time and helped me through stuff as far as all the questions I had, because he's got a brilliant mind when it comes to criminal justice and the court system uh, and laws and that kind of stuff, you know, so I don't know how it would have been without him. He just did so much. And I, and I will do something about this. I'm going to get my fucking toe money back. I'm going to file a complaint, but I'm waiting on a couple more things and I'm going to get those. And then I'm going to put everything together and people are helping me, Leslie and Andy and Jamie and anybody who knows anything about anything about this type of situation with how you're supposed to handle stuff as a first responder, uh, stuff about law enforcement. Ray has answered any question that I had. People have just been very forthcoming with information and that's been very helpful. So I invite anyone who is uh, law enforcement trained on CPR or first response or that knows a about that or medical professionals. I I always wanted to know the truth. That's what I wanted to know because I couldn't see, right? I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know he gave compressions at all. I didn't know how hard the fire rescue worked to help him. And that meant a lot to me. It was just a, it was just a crazy situation to me. You know, it was just like, I don't even know how to explain it. It just it just did such a such a number on my on every. It just changed everything, <laughs> everything. I'm still reeling. I'm just so mad. I'm just furious. You know, sometimes you just have one shot. And I've always told my kids this, and people in the criminal justice system know it, especially people in prison. One mistake you make as a kid can just completely change everything. And uh, he was just doing all the right things. And he was a good guy. I'm so tired of feeling terrible. I just have this constant feeling in the pit of my stomach. I don't think that he's ever going to be held accountable, uh, no matter what I do. And uh, I don't want it to happen to somebody else. That terrifies me. This looked to me like somebody who had never, ever done it before. 
I don't think that he wanted to pick him up because he was so big. That's the feeling I got when I saw that. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, it's funny. That very night, Ari, Gracie's boyfriend, said, you know, he's probably sitting there thinking, I did everything I could to save that guy. He said he's probably just sitting there thinking he did uh, everything he could. No, I don't believe it. I think he had like 20 like, oh shit moments the whole time. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it was because he did nothing. Well, he did nothing for five minutes. And But I'm telling you, he lied. He lied on the police report. He lied to his lieutenant. Uh, flat out lied. That can't stand. <laughs> that To me, that just cannot stand. It's funny that you said that should be used as a training tape because that was one of the first things I thought. I was like, if you want to see a tape of what not to do when you're responding to somebody in duress, this is it. That is this it. Is what not to do. And that's something that people are never going to forget again after they see that video and they'll never be that person. So you making it public, I think you are going to save some lives. Thank you so much for listening. Leslie asked me to read Bo's obituary at the end of this episode. I wrote the first draft within a week of Bo's death. The first paragraph was about Bo, and the remainder, a rant about what happened to him. At the time, I had no information, no police reports or videos, just the eternity, it seemed, of being on the phone, screaming at Bo, and screaming at the trooper. When I revisited the rant obit, it occurred to me that had I not been on the phone with Bo, I would have just gotten a call from the hospital, maybe around nine o'clock, informing me that Bo died. That just seems so crazy to me. Anyways, a few weeks ago, I wrote the second draft, and this one was actually about Bo, his beautiful soul, and the amazing people who held him up during his short life. And we called him Bo, but his name was Ricky. Ricky Bo Alexander, 28, died unexpectedly on Tuesday, February 1st, during a traffic stop for a seatbelt violation by a Tennessee state trooper. Autopsy results are pending. But that wasn't Bo's first run-in with the law. When he was five, his family moved to Atlanta. Having watched neighborhood kids get on the bus in the mornings, he just assumed he was supposed to do the same. So when he woke up the next day, he got dressed and hopped on the school bus. Of course, panic ensued when he went missing. But he was soon brought home in the back of a police car with his shirt on backwards, terrified. He always walked to the beat of his own drum. Bo was born in Maryville, Tennessee on October 20th, 1993. And he and his mom were warmly welcomed into the home of his Aunt Teresa and Uncle Ricky, who both loved him unconditionally and were there for him from the time he was brought home until the night he took his last breath. He was a dreamer and an old soul. He was kind, loyal, fiercely protective of loved ones. 
and generous to a fault. His eclectic tastes included billiards, drums, expensive whiskey, guns, trucks, ghost stories, conspiracy theories, CSI, law and order, music of all genres, and people of every race, gender, and creed. Bo never met a stranger. On road trips, when he was just a toddler, he would wave at people in cars so vigorously that it looked like he was trying to flag other drivers down. If it weren't for his ear-to-ear grin while he was waving, his mom probably would have been arrested for suspicion of child abduction. Bo frequently spent time in the summers with his memo and papa in Mississippi. There he would spend his days in Papa's garage helping him work on his cars. He even tried to fix Mamaw's car window one time with a hammer. That's when Bo learned about switches. His first best friend was his older cousin, Bailey, who liked to dress him up like a girl, taught him inappropriate jokes, tortured him, and defended him to the death. When Bo's little sister, Grace, came along, He was so excited to be a big brother. He loved playing cars on his mom's big belly when she was pregnant. Not long after he was born, Bo realized he could wrestle with her, and he would frequently be found hurling her over the couch. Grace would land hard, but would just laugh and laugh. She loved her big brother, Bo. who babysat her, protected her, and even though she tormented him, rarely missed one of Grace's sport or school events. He was so proud of the strong young woman Grace became. Bo and his best friend Chris spent endless days skateboarding the entirety of Fountain City, which resulted in frequent road burn on their backs and repeatedly getting chased off private property. Because, dude, if skateboarding was easy, it would be called football. Bo came of age in Memphis, where he met Sean, who would become another lifelong friend. And they were thick as thieves and always had something up their sleeves. So much so that Sean and Bo's moms had each other on speed dial for verification purposes. That was also where he met his first love, Amy, who he would be madly in love with for the next few years and is still part of our family. He loved hard, felt deep, and was faithful. He was a one-woman man, but always remained close friends with former girlfriends, just in case. (laughs) Nicole Jamie put that just in case part in there. Bo's last love was Kiki, who he was dating when he died. He was so excited about the budding relationship. Bo loved being in love. His version of the American dream was a house in the country, a wife, children, and to be a provider. And Bo was preceded in death by his sister from another mother, Brandy Ann Jacobson. His I'll whip you with the switch, Mamaw, Clyde May. His leave that baby alone, Peppa Norman. His doting Aunt Cat, who scarred Bo for life with her long, stabby fingernail tickles. Every single time she saw him and his singer songwriter, I hate my day job, Uncle Bobby. He is survived by his mother, Tammy, Jamie Snow, Alexander, sister, Gracie, 
Ari Sanchez, Alexander, Anson Uggles, Teresa, Ricky Gladson, Rhonda, Rex Miracle, Gretchen Alexander, and a gaggle of amazing cousins and chosen brothers and sisters of whom there are too many to name. A special thank you from the bottom of our hearts to Ricky and Teresa Gladson, Jeff and Cheryl Coleman, Susan McGovern, and Diane Rodriguez, both other moms and dads, and to his friends and loved ones who have shown their support, love, and affection for our family during this difficult time. All the Bo stories you've shared with us on social media and privately have been a great comfort to our family. Lastly, our family would like to thank firefighters, Captain Daniel Vanderwerf, Brian Hodge, Mike Underwood, and Rob Wilson from the Sweetwater Fire and Rescue for their valiant and unwavering efforts to save Bo. We are eternally grateful, and your service has not gone unnoticed. We don't know why Bo's life was cut short, but he was deeply loved. He is deeply missed, and he matters. The average person can hold their breath between 30 seconds and two minutes. When a person is in cardiac arrest, they lose all oxygen to their brain. After three minutes, brain damage begins to occur, and it gets progressively worse with every second that passes. The only treatment in this situation was immediate CPR until an AED became available. Trooper Walker was the only person in Bo's physical presence that could have administered CPR, and he found Bo unresponsive within one minute and 22 seconds of Bo's attack. And if you're listening to this, Trooper Walker, I want to know how quickly you would have gotten your son out of that truck and started CPR if you found him unresponsive. What is the acceptable amount of time for your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or someone you love to go without oxygen? What is the acceptable amount of time for you to go without oxygen? And I want you to know, Trooper Walker, that I am not angry because you didn't save Bo. I am furious because you didn't even try. <laughs>